This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, it's the story of Puss in Boots. It's about a house cat who wears boots. A lot of really important other stuff happens, but people only ever seem to focus on the boot thing. Anyway, all that aside, you'll see that if a cat starts talking to you and wants a pair of boots, get her a pair of boots. It'll change your life. Then, on the Creature of the Week, you'll see that if you employ mythological creatures, you'll want to encourage them to take all of their vacation time each year. It might just save the world. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 63, These Boots. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. This week, we're talking about Puss in Boots. There are three different main versions of the story, of a cat that wears boots, and while we'll talk about the differences between the main versions at the end of the show, I'm going to combine all three into one cohesive narrative. Just a quick note, if, like me, you've only seen the Antonio Banderas version from Shrek. Well, the cat in the earliest versions was female, so I'll refer to her as such. My boys, my boys, come to me. The three sons rushed to their father. He had been sick for some time, but it looked like this day would be his last. He lay there in his dirty bed, in his small, dingy house, and he told his sons to sit. He didn't have much time. They had always been poor, but it had gotten worse. After the father became ill and couldn't work anymore in the mill. Now, they were nearly destitute. The father turned to his eldest son, Dusselino, and held his hand. He said he would receive the mill in its entirety. The father knew that with the son's hard work and intelligence, that they could turn a profit and rise from these circumstances. The father then turned to Tess, the middle child, and said that he was giving his son Tess the donkey. He could do whatever he wanted, but if he joined with the elder brother, then they could build a life together, one owning the mill and the other the means of production. They could be partners, brothers. The father then turned to his youngest child, Constantino, and said, For you, my son, I have... Well, ooh. I definitely remember to leave you something. Just need to think of what that is. Need to look around. Cat. Cat. I will leave you the cat. The father was pointing at the cat in the corner of the room, licking itself. Not at all just saying that because it was the first thing he saw. The father went to sleep, and the elder brothers began talking about their joint business venture and how they were going to turn their lives around with this mill. The younger looked at the cat and said, Hey guys, how about we pool our resources? You with your mill, you with your donkey, and me with my cat. Can go far. But they ignored him. Constantino, dejected, went and scooped up his inheritance and left the room. Walking along the road, Constantino looked down at the cat and said, Man, this is terrible. After I eat this cat, I'm not going to have anything. Okay, I'm going to stop you right there, the cat said, looking up in mild shock at Constantino after learning what the boy was planning on doing. Wait, you can talk, the boy said. Well, yeah, I can talk, the cat said, but this is a fairy tale, so we're not really going to address it. Anyway, I can help you, so you don't need to eat me. I wouldn't really be that filling anyway. I just need two things. I need a bag, which should be pretty easy to come by, and then I'll need to have a set of boots made for me and then all your problems will be solved. Boots? Constantino said, how would that even work? 
Look, do you want to get in an argument with your cat in the middle of the street? Or do you want to be rich and powerful beyond your wildest imaginings? The young man sighed. He felt the cat. She really wouldn't be that filling. Besides, Constantino had seen her catching mice around the house. So she was pretty clever. He shrugged. Might as well see how this plays out. At least the tiny, adorable cat boots would be cheap. You just decided not to eat me, didn't you? The cat asked. Constantino looked away sheepishly. Anyway, the cat said, let me know when the boots are ready. I'll just be sleeping and wandering around until then. The next couple of days were eventful. The father died, and the young men went to work burying him. The older brothers let him know that they were selling the shack, for whatever they could get. And while he would get a bit of money from it, he would need to be out by the end of the month. Now, more than ever, Constantino hoped his talking cat's plan worked. Poplar did not judge Constantino for spending his last bit of money on custom-made cat boots. I mean, he still got paid. He didn't care what Constantino was into, and it wasn't any of his business that this guy both wanted to put boots on his cat and wanted to get his forearms scratched to ribbons by a cat who, the cobbler guessed, probably did not want to wear boots. But the cat did want to wear boots. Constantino presented her with the boots, and she tried them on. Perfect fit. He gave her the bag next. He didn't quite know what had gone wrong with his life to make him rely on a talking cat wearing boots for his salvation, but here he was. The cat said thanks, and that she would be back by nightfall, still not explaining her plan at all to the young man. While Constantino sat and fretted about his future, the cat had a plan, and it involved laying in a field. There, just outside of town, the cat laid down with her new pair of boots on, bag in hand, as if dead. She waited there, until some rabbits approached. The group of rabbits out running in the field and doing whatever it is rabbits do with their free time saw the cat lying there. One rabbit ran up to her, asking her if she was all right, but it was clear that she was dead. They thought it was a shame and felt bad for her. It said, in Perl's version, that these rabbits were young and rash and foolish and not yet acquainted with the deceits of the world. Unfortunately, one of them would never have time to become acquainted with the deceits of the world. As the rabbit was remarking on the nice boots, the cat sprung up and trapped him in the sack. I like to think that the last thing the rabbit said was, oh, hey, you're alive, that's awesome. Wait, why am I in a bag? Before the rabbit killed him. It's rare that you see a cat strutting through town on two legs, wearing boots, with a well-meaning but stupid dead rabbit in a bag flung over her shoulder. It's even rarer when she approaches the castle guards, talks to them, and says that she wants to give something to the king. The king responded exactly like you or I would in the situation. A talking cat is here wearing boots and walking on two legs? I don't even care why. Please send her in immediately. The cat was well-mannered and obeyed all the little formalities when presenting the dead rabbit to the king, who just thought that this was awesome. The cat kept going on about her master, Lord Constantino, and the king said that he would like to meet the man who is the master of such a wonderful cat. The cat only smiled. She thanked the king and said that she would see herself out. It said in one version that the cat took an alternate way out of the castle and helped herself to some gold and jewels with the now empty bag. I'm desperately trying to not make a cat burglar pun, so we're just going to move on. Back at the house, Constantino was speechless when he saw the gold and jewels that the cat dragged in. And I just realized upon saying that, that one pun made it through. Sorry. It was enough to buy his brothers out of their portions of the house, and then some. The cat had come through for him, 
and the cat continued to do so. It would leave early in the morning, find some more young animals that were not well acquainted with the deceits of the world, kill them, and then present them to the king, where she would hang out and joke with him and his courtiers. One day, the king insisted on meeting the cat's master, and the cat said that the king was in luck. Her master had been away on a trip all this time, but he was coming back into town tomorrow. The next morning, the cat didn't leave, but guided Constantino out to the river and told him to take his clothes off. Apparently, when a cat tells you to get naked and get in the river, you do it. Constantino, though, wasn't moving fast enough. The cat pulled his shirt off of him, helped him out of his pants, and then kicked him into the water. He yelled back in anger, but saw the cat sprinting off with his clothes. He tried to get out and chase after her to get his dirty, stinking rags back, but, you know, he was naked. He was stuck. The cat watched from the bushes. She had overheard the other day about the king's trip, and, like anachronistic clockwork, she saw his carriage kicking up dust. The carriage driver, thinking that the cat was just a normal cat, thought the animal would get out of the way, or get run over. But at the last possible moment, the king saw his new best cat friend and ordered the carriage to stop. He stepped out and greeted the cat, but was surprised to see his feline friend troubled. She said her master had been bathing after his return from his trip, and this is super embarrassing, but some brigands had come and robbed him while he bathed. Remember, he's really rich. Lord Constantino's men had chased them, and they might have caught up to them by now, but unfortunately, it left the stately lord in a very compromising position, naked in the river. The king waved it off. Who among us hasn't been stranded naked in a river? Luckily, the king never traveled without a change of clothes. He would be happy to help Lord Constantino. Down by the river, after Constantino had been dressed in clothes literally fit for a king, the king decided that this would be a good spot to stop and have lunch. So they all sat by the river, and the king got to know the nice, if awkwardly quiet, Lord Constantino. We'll see that the cat and Constantino will dig themselves into a pretty big problem. But luckily, like those sweet young rabbits, kings apparently are not well acquainted with the deceits of the world either. All that will be right after this. All right, now back to the show. The cat's plan was going well so far. Constantino, outfitted in new clothes with a much-needed bath, didn't look bad. As a little bonus, the king's daughter was with them. In the super nice clothes, the princess took an inclination to him, and it said in Peralt's version that Constantino cast, quote, two or three respectful and somewhat tender glances at her, and she fell head over heels in love with him. If you're trying to make something happen with that special someone, apparently the best move is two or three respectful and somewhat tender glances. That's some free dating advice from the Myths and Legends podcast. Also, I'm sorry to say this, but if you're taking dating advice from the Myths and Legends podcast, something has gone terribly wrong in your dating life. The cat was running into one problem, though. Constantino kept whispering to her, what about his dirty, stinking clothes that he had been wearing for like a month straight? Were they going back for those? The cat only put one claw to her mouth, telling him that for the last time, no, they were not going back for the clothes. Constantino said he only had like two pairs of pants. That puts a lot of pressure on the other pair. The cat said, seriously, shut up before they hear you. 
If this works, you'll never wear the same pair of pants twice, but it won't work if you keep insisting we go back for your rags. The king turned to the cat and Lord Constantino and asked what they were talking about. Oh, just rich people stuff, the cat said back. And the king understood. He too liked talking about rich people stuff. And he asked where they could take Constantino. Where was the lord's castle? Constantino somehow managed to look even more like a deer in headlights. Castle? He just owned his father's tiny apartment. The cat jumped right in though, saying his castle was actually pretty close to the king's, just down the road here. The king said that the pair could just pop in, and he would take them there. The cat blinked and swallowed hard. That was great, because the castle definitely existed. Unfortunately, they couldn't. They had business in town that they had to take care of, maybe another time. The king said, oh, I thought you were just robbed. You probably have to go back and get some money or something to trade, right? The cat took a deep breath. Yeah, yep, that's definitely right. You're a smart guy. As it turns out, we'd love a ride. Well, Constantino would. I can't. I have other business to attend to, but I will definitely meet you there. Constantino stared at the cat in disbelief, and the cat patted him on the shoulder and whispered, I'll take care of everything. Do not screw this up. As the cat disappeared into the bushes, she heard the king asking, again, where the castle was. And Lord Constantino saying, Uh straight down this road, just like the cat said. The cat took off into a dead sprint as soon as she was out of earshot of the king and Constantino. She had to think of something. She had to get this kid a castle. She did know one rumor to be down the road, but it had been abandoned months ago, or as far as she knew from the rumors she had picked up from a cat in town. If she could get to the castle fast enough, she might be able to open it and clean it enough so that it would be a workable ruse. Why did this king have to be so nice? As she sprinted down the road, she saw two men cutting grass, and she had an idea. She ran to them in a panic. She got their attention, and they said, yeah, what's wrong? Other than the fact that we might be hallucinating from the heat because we're talking to a house cat wearing boots. The cat said that they were coming. The bandits. The mowers stood up straight, gripped their scythes. What? The cat said, yeah, bandits. It's a group of men surrounding a carriage fit for a king. One of them actually dresses like the king but don't let his paunch and super nice demeanor fool you. He's incredibly vicious. He travels with a group of heavily armed men, and they murder everyone they talk to. The mowers anxiously look down the road the cat had come down. There's no outrunning them, but there is a way to survive. All you two have to say is, this land is owned by Lord Constantino, the Marquis of Carabas. It's a man the bandits fear so much that they wouldn't touch a hair on your heads. The mowers stood wide-eyed staring down the road and gripping their scythes as the cat said she was going to run off and warn others. She, quote-unquote, warned several groups of people. Two didn't buy it, but she picked up a small knife and threatened to stab them in their stomachs. That is generally pretty persuasive. She continued down the road until she saw the castle. Back with Constantino, the king, and the princess, the king did stop at the first mowers to see if he was getting close to Lord Constantino's land when the marquis didn't seem to know. The people were positively terrified, saying that yes, this land belonged to Lord Constantino, and he is super scary and will mess you up. The king nodded in approval. Constantino looked like some hapless kid, but apparently he ruled with an iron fist, and his subjects were terrified of him, which, for a medieval lord, was a nice touch. They rode on toward the castle. The drawbridge was up, but the cat was a cat, 
She climbed a tree overhanging the moat and followed a branch across. When she was on the wall, she slipped through a crack and found herself in the courtyard. She'd have to figure out the weights to get the gate up. Inside the gate, the palace was actually in pretty good shape. The plants were a little parched, but salvageable. She could just meet them outside, actually, but she had to get a look inside if they were going to keep this ruse going. She climbed and slipped in one of the windows, walking around the tops of the upper floors until she came to a long staircase and a nice room set for guests. The candles had burned down low, though, and gone out a long time ago. Except for a bit of dust and general disrepair, this room looked okay, except for the dry blood smears leading off into the darkness. Those did not look okay. Being a cat, she was surprised that anything could sneak up on her, let alone a hawking, 12-foot-tall ogre. She turned, and it stood in the shadows and roared. She gave up all pretense of walking upright or talking, and screeched like a cat, taking off on all fours in the opposite direction. She ran back toward the stairs, but slowed a bit when she saw the ogre twitching in the darkness. She went through a doorway, so it might not be able to follow her. Then, she saw a lion emerge from the darkness, and come running at full speed toward her. Oh cool, it can shapeshift, the cat thought, and ran off on all fours, away from the lion ogre as fast as she could. It was close behind, and chased her up several stairs. The boots looked good, but if she had known she was going to be chased by an ogre who had shapeshifted into a lion, she probably would have made a more sensible shoe choice today. The ogre chased her to the top floor, and soon she was running down a long hallway, with a lion close behind her, toward an open window. She took a deep breath, screamed a little, and jumped out the window. Luckily, there was a roof outside. Unfortunately, her nice boots were not as grippy as clogged cat feet. So she skidded. She twisted around and dug her claws into the tile of the roof, trying to slow herself. She did, but only fast enough to be dangling off the edge of the roof, several stories up, only holding on with one paw. The wind whipped her back and forth, and she started to unstick her claws from the tiles. She was going to drop. If she was going to die, at least she was going to go out on her terms, trying to better her life and not being eaten by some ogre. Then the lion's paw wrapped around her, Okay, it looked like she was going to be eaten by the ogre after all. She could see the crazed look on the lion's eye as it lifted the well-dressed cat to its mouth. The cat rolled her eyes and mumbled something under her breath. Wait, what'd you just say? The lion said, stopping just as it was about to put the cat in its mouth. It doesn't matter, just eat me, the cat said. The lion paused. Okay, well, I'm curious now. What did you say? The cat sighed. If you really have to know, I said... Of course I would be eaten by some third-rate shapeshifter. That's just the day I'm having. The lion said, okay, what? what? Third-rate? What are you talking about? I literally changed into a lion, and I'm going to eat you. That's good stuff. Look, it doesn't matter, the cat said. You won, just eat me. Quickly, please. We're on a roof. I'd rather not be remembered in death as someone who was eaten by, you know, your type. Ugh. Okay. What are you talking about, the lion said, relaxing and setting the cat down on the roof. I turned into a lion. That's pretty good. Yeah, I guess. What? You want me to turn into a dragon, the lion said? Oh my gosh. See, you're doing it again. This is the problem. I'm just going to come out and say it. I'm a city cat, and I've seen some stuff. Like, everyone in the city can turn into a lion or dragon or griffin. It's nice, but 
if we're being honest, it's kind of day one stuff. The really cool, cutting-edge, avant-garde shapeshifters all turning into small stuff. Like, if you could turn into, I don't know, a rat or a mouse, then yeah, that would be impressive. But hey, if the lion and dragon stuff is your thing, that's cool. I can turn into a mouse, the ogre said. And I believe you, the cat said. But if you don't mind, just please eat me. The longer we sit up here, the better the chance of someone seeing me eaten by a lion shapeshifter. The lion rolled his eyes. He said he could definitely turn into a mouse. Here, watch this, he said. Then I'll eat you. He transformed into a mouse in front of the cat. The ogre said, oh, I've made a horrible mistake, before being eaten by the cat in one bite. The cat exhaled and thanked God that ogres were extremely dumb before getting to work fixing up the castle. Everyone had stopped the carriage, singing the praises of Lord Constantino, the Marquis of Carabas, to the king, who everyone thought was just a really opulent bandit leader. The cat had plenty of time to clean everything up, and luckily, she found a small staff locked away in the kitchen. They had been kept for weeks by the ogre, and they were the ones who had helped prepare the meals outside. They were more than happy to help the cat out with his ruse, in exchange for freedom and not being occasionally eaten by a vicious ogre. Well, is it? The king said. Constantina looked up in terror at the wall. They had been outside yelling for a few minutes. The jig was up. He should come clean. He turned to the king and was about to tell him everything when they were greeted by a cat at the top of the wall, welcoming them to the castle of the Lord Marquis of Carabas. She lowered the drawbridge and raised the portcullis and allowed the king, the princess, Constantino, and all the guards inside. The young man went up to the cat saying it took her long enough to get the gate open. The cat sighed, saying, don't even start with me. Here's your free castle. Sorry it took me, a 12-pound cat, a bit of time to figure out the gate. Despite the dinner having been cooked for an ogre and his friends, it was good enough for the king and his courtiers. Sidebar, some art for the story by the amazing artist, Gustave Doré, has Puss in Boots meeting the ogre at the dinner table. And if you look even moderately closely, you'll see that the ogre has a plate full of tiny babies. If you had any doubt that the ogre was evil, well, there you go. And that's where the Peralt version cuts off. It's assumed that Lord Constantino married the princess, but with all those alluring, respectful, and somewhat tender glances, the cat, it said, became a lord and never had to chase mice again, unless she wanted to. Now, like I said, that's just one version. In the Peralt version, Constantino is a pretty bland character and has an amicable relationship with the cat. It's in the version by Giambattista Basile that he is incorrigibly stupid and keeps asking about his rags that they left behind. Even though he's now wearing clothes worth a thousand times more and the cat's just telling him to shut up and go with it. That one has much more colorful language when it comes to describing Constantino and I actually can't repeat it without making this episode explicit. If you remember, or you saw the live show a couple weeks ago, then you'll remember Basile as the writer of the original, extremely R-rated Sleeping Beauty story. In Basile's version of Puss in Boots, things don't end at the marriage. The cat isn't given the lordship, but she's basically given carte blanche to do or undo anything she wants, in now King Constantino's realm. Not only that, but she will earn an honor we all hope for when we die. She will be stuffed and put in a golden cage in King Constantino's room, so that he may look on her always. The cat narrowed her eyes, Wait, after I die, you're going to have me gutted and stuffed so I can stare with my dead eyes at you and your wife 
every night from a cage made out of solid gold? Uh, yeah, definitely, Constantino said. If cats could tear up, she would have. And she said Constantino was the best friend any anthropomorphic cat-wearing anatomically unlikely boots could ask for. But then, the cats started to suspect that Constantino wouldn't give her the extremely high honor of keeping her preserved corpse in his bedroom to admire her until he died. She came up with a plan. Constantino really should have seen through this one. When his wife came in hours later, with the cat by the tail, she had just found her, dead, in the hallway, feet sticking straight up with X's probably drawn over her eyes. Good thing they paid off the golden cage and found a good taxidermist. Oh yeah, we're not actually doing that, Constantino said. It's just one of those polite things you say to people, you know. Hey, when you die, I'll have you stuffed and put in a golden cage in my bedroom. No one actually expects anyone to follow through with it. It's like when you ask a stranger how they're doing. You don't actually want to immediately hear every detail of their mental state. You're just being polite. It's the same thing here. Anyway, just throw her body in the moat, so at least we'll be able to drown the fleas. The cat's eyes opened, and she said, One, this is early modern Europe. We all have fleas. And two, I knew it. And there's no twist ending, where the now King Constantino gets his comeuppance or anything. The betrayal of not wanting the anthropomorphic cat stuffed and at the foot of his bed forever broke the relationship that was, to be honest, really constantly strained to begin with. The cat left with nothing more than the boots on her paws, shouting that she should have known that the stupid, ungrateful Miller's son would never change. The king rushed to the kitchen to get her treats, but she wouldn't be persuaded. She left, and the king that owed her everything never saw her again. As I said at the top of the show, I combine the three main stories of Puss in Boots. The earliest is from the facetious Knights of Straparola, an Italian writer from the 1500s, and that's where the name Constantino comes from. In that one, it wasn't an ogre, but an old lord with a castle, where the cat talked her way in, and then Lord Valentino died. And since the guards had been instructed to tell the bandits that Lord Constantino owned the castle, they just shrugged and, well, who cares about secession? Lord Constantino now owned the castle. In that one, the cat is explicitly stated to be a fairy in disguise, and the writer is careful to avoid any gendered pronouns. In Basile's version, remember the Neapolitan writer who did the original Sleeping Beauty, the cat is a she, and in Peralt's version, it's a he. In Basile's version, the boy is named Pippo, and then his name inexplicably switched to Caliguoso. The river scene still happened in that one, as did the cat's misinformation campaign. But instead of the cat fighting an ogre for the castle, the young man just bought one after he became prince. That's way easier. Peralt's version is the main Puss in Boots story that we know today. And, as with Bluebeard, he ends with a couple morals. And since this is Peralt, he lists them at the end in bullet points. He says, one, there's great advantage in acquiring an inheritance. Which, of course, but diligence and ingenuity are worth more than wealth acquired from others. On the face, yes, that seems true. Except the boy's inheritance was a cat. And he didn't display any diligence or ingenuity, other than his trust in a talking house cat to solve all of his problems. The second moral is that clothes, appearance, and youth play a role in matters of the heart, if it means a poor miller's son won the affections of a princess, which is both common sense and kind of mean. It seems like it was Friday afternoon in 17th century France, and Peralt just wanted to wrap this story up and start the weekend, because these quote-unquote morals have nothing to do with the story. 
Anyway, these three versions occupy a weird place between literary fairy tale, meaning fairy tale put down to paper by one author, and actual folklore, because the story seems older than the original Italian version, but each author kind of did their own thing, inspired and informed by the one before him. I think it's pretty cool, and it gives us some insight into how the story has evolved over time. And that's it for Puss in Boots. Next week, we're staying in famous fairy tales and talking about the frog prince and a frog princess. And it might be the most fun I've had writing an episode. I'm not sure. Thor's wedding and monster skunk are up there. But really, please check it out. I'm excited about it. So in lieu of other announcements, there's a new episode of Career Day out this week. But if you're subscribed, then you know that it's no longer called Career Day. As it turns out, people have been amazingly open about their lives and personal journeys. So the focus isn't just on what people do. We still talk about all the cool little details of the jobs out there, but now it's more focused on the person. Anyway, it's now called Who We Are, and you can find it on iTunes at itunes.whoweare.fm and everywhere else at whoweare.fm. The creature this week is the Kalakantzeros, from the folklore of Greece, Serbia, Albania, Bulgaria, and Italy. Before we jump into this one, mythologies other than Norse have conceptions of the world tree, one tree that supports the earth, heavens, everything. And you might not know this, but there are shadowy, skinny, naked imps that are constantly sawing at the roots of said world tree. If they're successful, that's it. The world tree will come crashing down. And if you or your loved ones happen to live on the planet earth, I'm sorry for your loss. Fortunately, those shadowy, skinny, naked imps really like to party. Every year, they will hack and saw and bite at the trunk of the world tree until it's about to fall over. And every year, they get dangerously close to this universe-ending event until they take some time off for Christmas. They set their out-of-the-office replies and they put some post-it notes on the monitor to remind them to destroy the universe when they get back from the holiday break. And they climb up to Earth where they party like it's the end of the world. Because... When they get back to work on January 7th, it will be. They roam the streets and hillsides, attacking anyone they see. They also stay pretty drunk, loud and obnoxious the entire time. There's no agreed upon appearance for them, but most lore depicts them as nude, skinny, small, and partially blind with long goat tails. They have one major origin story, in that they were babies that were born in the time between Christmas and the Epiphany, or January 6th. When they reach adulthood, they might spontaneously turn into the creatures. If you notice your son or daughter born between December 25th and January 6th is growing a tail and has added destroy reality as we know it to their to-do list, you might want to sit down and have a talk before things get out of hand. There's apparently a way to keep your baby from turning into a calicanceros by binding them with garlic and singeing their fingernails. I probably don't need to say this, but I'm going to say it so I don't get sued someday. This isn't real. Please don't do this to your baby. Anyway, if the worst happens, and you find a group of Kalakantzeros surrounding your house, you can just scare them off by charging them with a red-hot poker. There are thoughts that this creature originated, at least in Italy and Greece, from a Roman festival where people would roam the streets in costume. The drunken revelry, perceived by likely equally inebriated crowds, might have led to the perceptions of monsters running around the streets, causing trouble. And whether it's a demon who spends all year sawing the world tree to end all life on Earth, or a drunk, skinny, naked guy rushing after them with a red-hot poker is an effective way to scare anyone off. When they stumble back to the office on January 7th and see the reminder to end the world, they'll look up in despair. The world tree took a vacation too, 
and healed while they were gone. As it does every year, a collective groan will rise as they get everything they need to start the job all over again. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes, and you can say hi to me on Twitter or Facebook at MythPodcast. I'm Jason Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.